And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it's Tuesday as we get this week underway. And uh, we're also getting ready to start quarter four earnings season. Yep, right around, I'm sorry, yeah, quarter four. Um, so right around the corner here, we're going to start looking backwards to see what earnings were for the companies over the last quarter of the year. And interestingly enough, as we moved into December, we had a very rapid downgrade of those estimates. So once again, as we've always talked about here, it's about time to start millennial earnings season because we lower the bar, everybody gets a trophy, and uh, we're all happy, right? So it'll be the, the typical where we have a very high beat rate of earnings. You know, we'll have 75, 80% of companies beating the estimates by a penny or two, and everybody will be all excited. Uh, but reality is, is that earnings and revenue growth have been very weak over the last year and continue to be that way. Uh, in fact, last year, yes, we had a very big advance in the markets, but not because of fundamentals. Um, last year's advance in the market was primary, primarily what we call a valuation expansion. In other words, individuals were willing to pay more for earnings than what earnings were actually providing. So they were just willing to pay a big premium, and we saw that last year. And of course, the hope is of, that the Fed's going to cut rates. So this really isn't a, a fundamental rally by any stretch of the imagination last year. Um, wasn't based on stronger economic data, stronger earnings. Nope, nope. This is really just hopes all about Fed rate cuts, more monetary accommodation. And, you know, hopefully this year, you know, we, we won't have a recession. That's the goal. Uh, so we'll see what happens. But again, as we kind of, you know, start looking at these quarter four earnings, it's, it's important to kind of keep in mind, you know, what's going on now. As we look forward into 2024, already, we're, we're just in the first month of 2024 and already estimates for 2024 have already dropped by over $10 a share. So estimates that were put out last year for 2024, those are starting to come down as well already. So again, you know, this whole view of this strong economic recovery, et cetera, uh, is, is starting to, to get tapered back here a bit. And again, you know, the, what's important about this, of course, is, is that, you know, what are you, what are you paying for earnings, you know, when you look at a company? You know, how much earnings growth do they actually have? Apple's a really good example of this. You know, Apple continues to be, you know, yesterday was a good example. Apple had a big day yesterday. Um, but this continues to be a stock that trades with a multi-trillion dollar valuation, um, but hasn't grown revenue in years, right? So what are you actually paying for? So this, these are the questions that not only you're going to have to answer as we move forward to the year, but eventually the markets are going to have to deal with this as well. Now, you know, we, we obviously have a, a differentiator in the markets now that we haven't had before, and that's ETFs. Uh, more and more ETFs are getting issued all the time. Everybody's coming up with a new flavor of an ETF. And, you know, we're about to launch uh, potentially, um, you know, wait for the SEC approval, a new suite of Bitcoin ETFs. So, you know, have a new way to invest in Bitcoin. But... You know, we come out with, you know, more and more flavors of ETFs and each one of those ETFs all contain the same stock. So every time that money flows into these ETFs, well, they turn around and funnel money directly into Apple, Microsoft and Netflix and 
Google, et cetera. And, and again, this is why those big tech stocks continue to dominate the markets, really regardless of what the underlying valuations say. In fact, right now you're paying a huge premium for those tech stocks. We own them. Why? Because we have to, right? We don't own them because of fundamental reasons. We own them because we have to, because that's what that's where markets are gravitating to and that's where market performance is coming from. So, you know, it's, it's one of those very interesting conundrums in the markets that's being created by this massive flood of passive indexing, which, you know, ultimately someday, I don't know when, you know, there'll be some revision, a reversion of all this. It just depends on when and where it happens. But at some point, you know, valuations do matter. They just don't seem to matter right now. <laughs> at least in the case. Um, but as we kind of look forward into the year, you know, this is the thing to pay attention to. Just how strong is that economic growth going to be? Inflation's coming down. Uh, the, the New York Fed expectations index continues to decline uh, in terms of inflation expectations. But there's some evidence that we could see an uptick in inflation this year, uh, particularly if you start looking at consumer confidence. Consumer confidence is improving because, well, interest rates are coming down. People are able to go out and maybe buy a house. Car prices are coming down, so maybe see more car purchases. Supply and demand, that's what drives inflation. So as these inflationary pressures come down and as consumer confidence increases because we keep running up asset prices, right? I feel richer, so I'm gonna spend some more money. Uh, that potentially puts weight on inflation and that's gonna be a, a, a position that the Federal Reserve does not wanna be in. But Right now we're into an election year, and so the Federal Reserve is doing what they can to try to keep things status quo, at least for the year right now. Okay, here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Yesterday we missed it by that much. We noted yesterday that the markets were negative for the first four days of the year, and yesterday, of course, was the fifth day of January, the fifth trading day of January. Now, it was technically January the 8th, but, <laughs> you know, it was the fifth day of January. Um, and, and we said that the market would have to have an exceptionally strong rally if it was going to create a positive rate of return for the first five days. And man, the market tried. We had a very big advance yesterday in the markets. All of a sudden, all that selling pressure that we saw coming in, particularly into the tech stocks, right? We saw Apple and Microsoft and NVIDIA under pressure in the first few days of this year. And we had mentioned that that pressure was most likely being caused by tax gain selling by these professional managers. So, you know, portfolio managers, et cetera, they do their tax loss selling going into year end. So they get the tax deduction for that. And then they wait until January to make all their sales of gains. So they were very overweight tech stocks from the rally last year. So they were selling those stocks to take the gain now because now they don't have to pay, uh, pay any taxes on those gains until 2025. So again, that was that initial pressure. Well, yesterday we saw that rally come back and the buying come back into those very specific stocks. Yesterday was pretty much predominantly Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, et cetera. Uh, big, big day. Uh, NVIDIA, AMD, both up over 5% yesterday. So again, just a very big day. But unfortunately, for the first five days, we were negative 0.13%. I mean, Almost made it. Just if the market had been open another hour, probably would have been able to make it. So very, very close. What does that mean for the year, of course? Well, um, technically, if your first five days are negative, well, that typically leads more times than not to a weak month of January, which tends to lead to not necessarily a negative return for the year, but for lower returns for the year. 
So in other words, instead of the market ginning out an eight or nine or 10% average rate of return, it typically tends to be lower, like sub 5% uh, for the year, actually closer to zero. Uh, for the year. So again, as we continue to kind of look forward to the year, again, these are all statistical anom anomalies. Um, we're about to have the Super Bowl, so we'll have the Super Bowl indicator to deal with. Um, you know, don't put a whole lot of weight into these things because, again, anything can happen. But statistically speaking, again, we go back and look at previous history, right? And when we see the first five days of, ne of January negative, uh, the year tends to be weaker. Um, if the entire month is negative, then the year tends to be weaker. So again, just this is kind of setting the tone. Now, we're only about 1% away from all-time highs in the market. So again, just because the first five days of, of January are negative doesn't mean this market can't turn around here. Um, we, we were getting fairly oversold. We mentioned yesterday because we're getting oversold, we could get a rally. That's what happened. We're now starting to move that up into more overbought territory. Again, still on a sell signal. Futures are weaker this morning. So again, we'll just see how this plays out. We'll report more, more on it tomorrow for you. But just you know, continue to kind of just keep investments status quo for now. All right, quick break, come back, pick up on the other side, The Real Investment Show. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. back to the show this morning. So again, just kind of talking about, you know, where this year's going. And um, it was interesting because over the holidays, and I talked a little bit, touched on this yesterday. I, I, I told you I'd give you all the data today. Um, but over the um, holiday break, I was running a series of polls on Twitter. Um, so, you know, it was, it was just interesting. Again, there's nothing scientific about this at all. Um, it wasn't a single poll uh, with multiple questions, so the respondents are all different to each question, but it was interesting enough to get kind of a, a pulse of individuals, you know, kind of views on the market, the economy, interest rates, etc. And, you know, what's interesting about it is, is that, you know, at the beginning of the year, you know, we all have an outlook. And at the beginning of last year, the outlook was very negative for the year. Um, and as we entered the year, um, most analysts, most Wall Street estimates were for a, a flat to negative year last year. And of course, the market turned on, turned into 24% advance and something certainly very different than what was expected. Um, and again, you kind of look at last year, you know, there was plenty of negative headlines. Uh, really across the board, you know, uh, as, as we started out, we had two big bank failures in March. Um, interest rates on the Treasury were really beginning to start to rise. Then the Fed was hiking interest rates to five and a half percent. And all of these were headlines like, you know, uh, there was just plenty of negative headlines and, and plenty of negative, uh, you know, commentary that was coming out of whether it was a YouTube channel or whether it was a you know article on some website somewhere or on the, 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 the mainstream media. 
you know, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, this is happening and, you know, this is terrible for the markets. It's all going to crash, right? And people were starting to hide money into treasury bills and money market accounts. We had a big surge in money market accounts last year. Um, you know, Fitch downgraded the, the U.S. debt. That was going to be another catastrophe. We had the UAW strike. We had the speaker House Speaker issue. Um, we had the, the Israeli, um, you know, conflict start. You know, so again, just all through the year was this negative barrage of data. And outside of a very normal, healthy 10% correction during the summer last year, the markets had an excellent year. And markets did well. And, you know, and, and this is the point that, you know, we want to, to kind of follow, which is that, you know, when you look back and, and when you think about things right now, there's plenty of, of reasons to be negative, right? And you're going to kind of see this in the, in the data, um, you know, when we get into it. But, you know, plenty of reasons to be negative this year, right? Inflation's still high. People are still having trouble making ends meet. Credit card debt is surging. I mean, we can make plenty of negative commentary, right? But markets tend to or have the ability to do something entirely different than what you would expect. And this is why it's always so very difficult to manage money over time because you know markets don't always do what is sensical or logical in the short term and this is this is what makes it difficult but anyway uh so i took a poll again and i'm going to share some of the results of the poll with you uh this morning um so we asked people we said you know where do you think the market's going to end up in 2024 right um and the you know i had to use some fairly wide ranges because twitter will only allow you four <laughs> For you know, I couldn't do it like in hundred you know hundred point blocks. Uh, you only have four four choices to put on there. But uh, the 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 vast consensus was below forty six hundred. And if we split the forty six hundred to five thousand range, we have more than fifty percent of people thinking that the economy will end negative for the year. Where we're, you know at the time that I took this poll, the markets were trading around forty seven fifty. So. The vast majority of individuals are thinking, again, that we're going to have a bearish year in the markets. And this is kind of the way we were last year. Um, most Wall Street estimates right now are between 5,000 and 5,200 uh, on the markets. So I just thought it was interesting because, again, you know, we're entering a year coming off a screaming hot year last year of 24%. You have a lot of momentum in the markets. You've got a lot of very positive sentiment right now. Investor sentiment is very bullish. And, you know, this is going to be kind of an interesting thing to see. Um, so if you think about the market being negative for the year, so in order to have a negative market year, most likely what we're going to need is a recession. So how many people thought that we would have a recession coming in 2024? And I asked the question, I said, what is the percentage chance? What are the odds of a recession in 2024? More than 50% chance was 45% of the respondents. And if you throw those in with 100% chance, you have more than 50% of the people. Actually, you know, uh, you have 50, almost 60%, 58% of the respondents saying that there is a better than 50% chance and up to 100% chance of a recession next year. Now, that would certainly jive with the view that you think there's going to be a negative return in the markets, right? Because that's really where it's going to come from, is from this 
you know, a, a, a bigger slowdown in economic growth, a bigger reduction in earnings. Markets have to reprice for that. So again, makes a lot of sense. And, you know, as, and this is, you know, as we kind of continue to look, and again, as I was talking about at the, uh, at the open this morning, if you take a look at last year's returns, it was all a function of valuation expansion. In other words, people were paying a lot more for, for each dollar of earnings than they were actually getting. Even though we had some earnings growth last year, it was not nearly enough to compensate for that 24% rate of return. So again, you had a very big jump in evaluation expansion, which typically fosters more difficulty in the, subse uh, you know, the subsequent year. Because again, you kind of front ran the market. And so earnings have to now catch up with these prices. Right, because you've had this big expansion in, in multiples, so we'll see what happens. But you know, again, as we talk about earnings, earnings estimates are already starting to come down. Um, you know, as I said in the, in the opening segment, we started out with quarter four estimates at two hundred and twenty-seven dollars. That's twenty twenty-four estimates for the year. We started out with those earnings estimates at two hundred twenty-seven dollars. We're now down to two hundred seventeen dollars as of January the first. So we've already had a $10 reduction in earnings. So it certainly doesn't argue that, you know, the valuation multiples that we applied to the markets last year are justified. Because that, you know, the reason we were willing to pay the premium is because everybody's expecting this massive surge in earnings this year. And again, it's still a healthy increase, don't get me wrong. And, you know, we were at 184 in quarter three. We're about to find out what quarter four is. But again, you know, Earnings are improving, right, unless we have a recession. But we've already kind of paid for those earnings by that valuation expansion that we had last year. So, you know, but again, so now, now this kind of shifts towards, you know, about the economy, the things that drive the economy. So, so you know, thinking about this. You know, I, you know, we have to ask about where do you think real inflation adjusted GDP will be this year? Because, again, if, if economic growth slows down, earnings are going to slow down because earnings are derived from economic growth. Most of the participants in the poll, 68%, are actually, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, 69%-ish, um, said that growth would be below 2%, and 28% of those were basically recession, below zero growth. So again, if you're expecting those really strong earnings growth rates, that's going to be hard to justify in an economy that is growing at 2% or less. Now, again, these are all just assumptions and estimates, et cetera. But again, as you can see, most participants have a very negative view towards the economy. As we move out this year. But so now, again, now here's where it gets a little bit interesting. So lower economic growth, lower earnings, weaker environment in terms of stock prices. Now, if you do all that, if you get that, that doesn't bode well for consumer sentiment. Consumer sentiment is driven a lot by how people feel about where they are in life, right? So my, my 
401k plan is doing well. I feel good about things because, you know, my investment accounts are doing well. I've got more money, so I'm going to go out and spend more money. Most importantly is that they have a job. Consumer confidence. So when asked about unemployment, the vast majority of participants, and this is roughly uh, 68% of the participants, said that the unemployment rate will be above 4% or 5% in 2024. So in other words, we have a, a, an increased amount of layoffs and unemployment going this year. Now, look, some of the certain, you know, certainly some of the most recent economic data certainly support this. In fact, you know, one of the leading indicators for basically a recession or at least a slower economic growth environment is full-time employment as a percentage of the population. I'm going to go into this more in detail in Friday's uh, report, but just in a month, we had a very, very sharp contraction in full-time employees relative to the working age population. That only happens just prior to an economic slowdown or recession. So if that is happening, right, if we're seeing an economic slowdown in employment, that certainly doesn't bode well for economic growth, which leads to a very interesting dichotomy in views. And we'll talk about the, the other side of this when we come back from the break. Don't go away. Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. Looking for clarity for your investments in the new year? You must attend our 2024 Economic Summit, Navigating Markets in a Presidential Cycle, featuring Greg Valier. Trump will be a big presence. The bigger story, in my opinion, is how weak Joe Biden is going to be. Is the Fed finished tightening? Liquidity, I think, is underestimated. Will rates ease this summer? States are still flush with cash. They haven't spent all their money from the pandemic relief bill. How will the election affect your investments? I don't see any political figure right now who can bring the country conclusively back together again. Register now for our 2024 Economic Summit, Navigating Markets in a Presidential Cycle, featuring Greg Valier with special guest Adam Taggart, plus Michael Lebowitz and Lance Roberts, Saturday, January 27th at the Hotel Celeste Houston. Navigating markets in a presidential cycle. Featuring Greg Valier. Saturday, January 27th at the Hotel Celeste Houston. Registration open now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. So welcome back to the show this morning. Um, just going through this analysis, um, I just thought it was interesting. Took a poll on Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it, um, over the last week of the year. And, you know, the results were kind of interesting. You know, so far we've kind of gone through the first phases of it, which is that most people expect, in the polls anyway, expect weaker economic growth, higher unemployment, um, potential for a recession. You know, that's kind of the outlook. And that certainly doesn't 
bode well for the financial markets uh, that were basically bid up on a valuation expansion last year because earnings have to come from economic activity. So if you're going to have slower economic growth, slower you know, higher unemployment or potential recession, that certainly doesn't bode well for strong earnings growth, certainly doesn't bode well for a much, you know, another strong year in the financial markets like we saw last year. But this is where it, was, this is where it got interesting, though. So I then asked, after asking these questions, I then asked, I said, where do you see inflation this year? And I thought this was interesting. If you take a look at the inflation assumption, most people thought that inflation would be lower this year. Um, about 38.3 thought it would be between 3 and 4% about where it is now. 34% thought it would be below 3%. Excuse me, below 3%. But, you know, if you take a look at where inflation is now, um, which we're running around 3% right now, um, you have a, a large majority, you know, uh, of the poll, um, you know, roughly about 65% of the poll is thinking that inflation will be either where it is now or higher through this year. But that doesn't jive with weaker economic growth. If you're going to have weaker economic growth, inflation is going to be lower than 3%. So this is where we started getting a little bit of a, a disconnect between views on the economy and views on the things that are part of the economy. Inflation is a function of supply and demand. So you can't have higher inflation and a weaker economy. Those, just, those two don't work together as a function. And in fact, we can prove that by taking a look at, uh, and I'll get to this in a second, we, we can prove that by looking at a composite index here in a second. Um, how about interest rates? Where do you think interest rates will be by the end of this year? Again, kind of an interesting conundrum because interest rates um, were expected large uh, by a large majority to be higher than 3%. So 37% at 3%, 23% at 4-5%, another 16 at 5%. Only 23% of the poll thought interest rates would be below 3%, which would coordinate with a weaker environment. So again, you can't have higher interest rates and a recession. Those two just don't go together. But you know, it's interesting as as we go through this and 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 look at how these things function that there's this disconnect because again, a lot of this comes from the media. But you can't have a disconnect between inflation and interest rates and a recessionary economy. That just those two don't go together. And like I said, we can prove this out. Um, I built a composite index that combines, combines wages, rates, and inflation. Those are your factors that drive economic activity, and we can compare that to GDP. And, and there's a high correlation between this composite index of wages, rates, and inflation as compared to GDP. Those are declining, right, which is why we're seeing economic activity declining, right? Economic activity is slowing, but we're still very elevated relative to where we were prior to 2020 when we did all that stimulus. But it is coming down, but it is still elevated. But again, as I, as I stated, there's a very high correlation. There's an 87% correlation between that composite index and GDP growth. So the point is that you can't have an economy that's in you know near recession below two percent or in a recession and have interest rates running at three four five percent 
or inflation running at three, four, five percent. Those those two just they can't exist in that same world. Um, <clears throat> so again, you know, the the overall poll was quite interesting again as a function because there there is this very interesting disconnect. And again, I can kind of blame this on the media because. Again, between the media and YouTube channels, you know, people out there is like, oh, all the debt's going to lead to this, you know, this big run up in inflation and interest rates. Not really, no. In fact, more debt is deflationary, recessionary, because the more debt you have, the more you detract capital from productive investment into debt service. But Lance, we had all this debt issuance. We had inflation last year. Well, yeah, that was because we sent checks to households. Right. We actually sent money to spend in households and we shut down the economies. We've talked about before you created a supply demand imbalance. It was artificial. But you created the supply demand imbalance. And so we're having to work through that process. And again, we're still working through that process, but we are starting to run out of capital. It was interesting yesterday. Uh, we saw the credit card uh, debt increase fairly significantly. In fact, credit card debt hit an all time record over five trillion in credit card debt yesterday. So, you know, we continue to see consumers tapping on more credit, looking for places to spend money, how to get money to spend. You know, the, we talked about buy now, pay later, right? These uh, companies like Affirm and others, PayPal. Um, you know, I posted a chart out yesterday, you know, on, on Twitter. You know, a lot of, a lot of this buy now, uh, pay later has surged over the course of the last couple of years as people are running out of money. They're looking for other ways to buy what they want. And these buy now, pay later scam schemes, <laughs> you know, work well for that. Uh, the question is, is what, you know, it's like, oh, just, you know, you don't pay any interest. Sure, you don't. There ain't no free lunch. You know, it's not, you're paying for it somewhere. The question is, is when and how do you pay for it? But yeah, buy now, pay later works great until it doesn't. And, you know, this is going to be the, the eventual problem for a lot of people is, you know, in, in in you know if you if you look at buy now pay later like I have no debt, right? So if I want to take something out on a buy now pay later thing, I can do that and I can pay it off in four payments, right? And pay no interest. So yeah, that's kind of a cool way to access you know use a little bit of leverage, right? I don't know why I would do that, but I could. But that's not most people. Most people don't have in you know most people have debt. Most people aren't debt free. So the, the question then becomes, all right, I've got a mountain of credit card debt that I'm servicing. Oh, I have this student loan debt I'm servicing. I'm completely tapped out of money, and I, and I want to go buy a new iPhone, so I put it on a buy now, pay later. Right? So just it's an additional form of credit and leverage of people who are already tapped out. But this is why the economy keeps chugging along right now. And things seem to be okay. Things seem to be okay at the moment. The question is just when will it not be, right? What, what is it that's going to eventually push things kind of over the edge? And, and again, I don't know. You know, we could have another year where the economy just kind of, uh, you know, strums along at, you know, 2%, 2.5%, 3% growth. We'll see. Um, you never, you know, there's an old saying about never counting out the consumer. And that's a, very, it's a, it's a very good statement. Consumers are extremely creative about figuring out a way to spend more money. So, you know, it, it'll just depend on how, how this, uh, how this all works out. 
But again, the poll was interesting just because of this dichotomy between what people expect interest rates and inflation to be. And again, that comes from the, a lot of the media, these YouTube channels, et cetera, the kind of the end of the world doom and gloomers. It's like, oh, well, this is going to, you know, the dollars, you know, this and, you know, the bonds or that, and, you know, whatever. But those things have a mechanical attachment to the markets and to the economy. They are, they are a function of each other. Because economic activity drives earnings, economic dri activity drives interest rates, economic activity drives inflation, economic activity drives wage growth, economic activity, it's everything. They're all tied together. You cannot separate one and say, this is going to do this, and not consider what else is happening in all those other facets because they all reflect on each other and what's going on. So anyway, that article in the poll, if you want to go read it, um, is on the website at realinvestmentadvice.com. And again, uh, the, 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 the kind of the more you know, interesting point uh, really comes down to that full employment versus the population. And on Friday, um, I've got an article that will discuss that in a whole lot more detail and about why that's a very important indicator to pay attention to as it relates to where expectations for economic growth are this year. And again, there's something happening in the employment sector. And we saw this in this latest employment report, which was not nearly as strong as headlines suggested. There's something going on there that we need to pay attention to. Now, again, that doesn't mean you're going to have a recession. It is, as we've talked about before, it's the kindling for the fire, right? You've got something going on with employment that's kindling for a recession. But that in and of itself, just like a yield curve, just like leading economic indicators or in recessionary territory, but that doesn't mean you're going to have a recession. Those are the kindling for the fire. But you got to have something to ignite it. Right? You have to have some event that shoves the economy into a contraction. In other words, you've got to shock consumers. You've got to shock the markets with something entirely unexpected that, that nobody's planning on. Something occurs, some event happens, something, some exogenous event occurs, and all of a sudden, all bets are off. But what we do know is, is that the kindling for the fire, the fire is built, right? We've got the, the, the TP logs, we've got the kindling underneath. It's all ready to go. Just needs a match. Until that match occurs, everything's going to be chugging along. All right, quick break. Be sure you're here by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Uh, make sure you get your tickets. Uh, they are. We've had a good bit of sales here over the last couple of days, so make sure you get your tickets for the upcoming event on January the 27th. Be right back. Daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. Interesting headline Dog meat will be off the menu in South Korea. That couldn't have come soon enough. <laughs> Can you imagine? 
I mean, can you imagine that? In, you know, you go to a Korean restaurant in Houston, uh, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> wouldn't go over well. Uh, the band caps a decades-long campaign. This is in the, the Wall Street Journal, by the way. Uh, the band caps a decades-long campaign against a controversial practice that many locals have come to view with unease. Yeah. As a dog lover, I can tell you why. So... Not the first thing I think of. Anyway, um, so kind of the whole point of the poll um, that we took was really kind of just get a gauge on kind of what people are thinking. And again, uh, nothing scientific about the poll at all. Um, it was just really a series of, of random questions. And again, I didn't poll the same person, so I wasn't getting the same person answering the same view. I mean, the same person may have answered all the polls, but I don't know that. Um and they were done over a series of days. And so, you know, things that happen in the markets or the headlines certainly affect people's opinions when they take polls. But it's just an interesting outlook, right? Just, you know, trying to get a consensus of kind of what the average person thinks about things relative to what Wall Street thinks about things. And, you know, and again, you know, the big question is, is right now markets are just within a hair's breadth. We're about 1% off of all-time highs. Um, as of yesterday's close, so just very close to actually hitting all-time highs, and we'll be we'll finally after two years get back above where we were in January of 2022. But the question then becomes, you know, what happens then? Uh, valuations are still you know high, certainly can't deny that, and the real question becomes just. You know what happens with economic growth? Sure, we can make some all-time highs in the markets, but you again to go forward, to continue having higher highs and and stronger financial markets going forward. Well, you've got to also have stronger economic growth and you know those type of things. But the 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 real question becomes looking at the markets over time and looking back. And saying, okay, well, since 2009, we have injected the economy with $43 trillion of capital. And we, we wrote an article on this just, you know, last week. Talking about, you know, HAMP and HARP and TARP and bank bailouts and quantitative easing. One, two, three, four, you know, just Operation Twist. You know, every time we turned around... There was some form of government of stimulus checks to households. There's some form of government intervention. We just kept pouring money into the economy to keep it going. And, and so the question really that we have to ask is, is, well, what's coming next? Right now, we don't have QE going on. We have QT. Uh, that will end at some point. I'm sure that the Fed will go back to QE. But the, the question becomes is that, you know, if we spent $43 trillion over the last 10 years to get markets to where they are, what are we going to do over the next 10? And, and where will all that money come from? And what will be the economic ramifications of that? Because, you know, what we know over the last 10 years is that $43 trillion created a massive wealth gap within the economy. The top 10% got wealthy. The bottom 50% didn't. In fact, their financial situation didn't improve at all. So we keep hollowing out the middle class. We keep making the rich richer and the poor poorer. 
Um, what QE does, and we when we know this now in hindsight, is that it's a it's a huge wealth transfer from the middle class to the rich because the rich own the businesses and the middle class works for them. So if we're going to do that again, if we're going to spend another decade doing financial interventions to support economic growth instead of letting the economy do what it needs to do, what does it look like for the middle class in 2030? Right? So the question we have to start kind of asking ourselves is, is that, you know, with markets richly valued, earnings growth tepid, and really uh, uh, the, the lack of incentive, I guess, at this point. I, I, don't know, I don't really know how to phrase this, but what's going to be the driver for the next set of $50 trillion worth of interventions? We don't, have a, we don't seem to have at the moment another financial crisis brewing. We don't seem to have um, you know, any type of, of vast economic downturn at hand. I'm not saying we won't, just don't see it right now. So without those, what is going to be the quote-unquote emergency that the Federal Reserve and the government has to bail out? Why would the government all of a sudden spend $5 trillion sending checks to households, right? You need a reason to do that kind of event. So we'll see. I, I, I don't know the answer, but, you know, when we go back and we start looking at, you know, where returns came from over the last decade, we've all gotten very, you know, um, exuberant about markets over the last decade, right? It's the only place to be. It's a place to make money. You just throw your money in the market. It always goes up. It's always great. But that's been driven by a tremendous amount of monetary interventions that I just don't see where it's coming from in the future. Again, it may. It may. Right. I'm not saying it won't. And this is why we can't really, you know, plan out more than two or three months in advance. We just you know, have to trade the markets for what they are and, and deal with what's going on near term. But, you know, just as we look forward. Where's going to be the massive interventions to drive asset prices higher? You know, what we do know is that politicians and major financial institutions like BlackRock and others drive themes that extract capital from middle class, right? Whether it's climate change or whether it's ESG, um, these extract capital for the benefit of Wall Street. It hurts the middle class by making things more costly. So, you know, all these themes and policies that are put out there, they sound great on the surface and, you know, they they get a whole lot of traction in the media. But it hurts the middle class. You know, we talked about ESG, you know, we wrote lots of articles about the fallacy of ESG back in 2020, 2021, and now ESG has become a dirty word in, in the financial services. You know, it's interesting because, you know, if you get rid of, uh, you, you do realize if you get rid of petroleum-based products, you know, in this function to battle climate change, you will basically wipe out f half the planet. Four billion people 
have a very big dependency on petroleum-based products, whether it's fertilizer or a variety of other issues, just to survive. And you extract that, they're going to die. You do solve your climate change that way, but not necessarily the way you want to do it. I thought there was an interesting thing about, about carbon emissions yesterday that's easily solvable by math. They said that the U.S. emits 14 trillion tons of carbon, of CO2 every year. That's a lot, right? Until you look at trees, which absorb about 48 pounds of carbon every year. There's 268 billion trees-ish. Just trees, which, do your math, is about 11 trillion tons of carbon that they absorb every year. So out of 14, 11 trillion are taken care of by trees. And that doesn't talk about plants, grass, anything else. But we're spending and we're pushing a narrative that's extracting capital from the middle class to do what just planting a tree does, which is extract CO2 from, from the atmosphere. Which is far cheaper to do that, just plant more trees to help battle your CO2 emissions rather than raising the cost of goods, products, and services on the middle class and the poor, which are the ones that you're impacting the most by these policies. Again, whatever your policies are is fine. I don't care about that. But the point is, is that we do these things and it continues to extract capital from the middle class to those that are providing these products, whether it's electric cars or batteries or, you know, alternatives for petroleum-based products, whatever it is. The people that own these products and companies are the ones that are getting rich and extracting capital from those middle classes. And this is why that wealth gap keeps expanding and making it more difficult. And so, you know, back to what we're, you know, back to the outlook going forward. Again, this is why we have no idea, and nobody does, where things are going. But the questions at some point is that there's only so much debt you can issue to support economic growth. And we do know for a fact that the more debt you have erodes economic activity over time. It creates an economic disparity. So, so again, just kind of interesting. There's an interesting Wall Street Journal out this morning. Can stocks surpass the 2022 highs? The answer is yes. But the problem is, is the outlook gets a lot cloudier from there. So anyway, get by the website. That article is up on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. If you have any questions or comments, be sure and send us your emails. Always happy to help you out. Make sure you register for the upcoming uh, conference on January the 27th with Greg Valier. And we'll be talking about political outcomes, markets, bonds, interest rates, everything you want to know about how to invest this year, January 27th. 8 a.m. to noon at Hotel Sinesta. There will be no recording, so it is a live event. You'll have to come to it, so you have to get your tickets online now. Realinvestmentadvice.com.